to the Modern Chemistry Podcast with your host, Paul Orange. Hello and welcome to episode number 14 of the Modern Chemistry Podcast. We're coming to you hot on the heels of episode 13, which released a couple of weeks ago. And the reason for that is I think there's a great follow-up to the discussion that we had with Sylvia Marchison in that episode, where we ended up talking about computational chemistry. And that's a real focus for today's interview. I'm talking to Elisa Fada, and Elisa is a lecturer at Maynooth University in uh, the Republic of Ireland in the Department of Chemistry. And in particular, Elisa has been doing work on the glycoprotein or the carbohydrate structure that's associated with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus protein spike and how that has a role in infectivity. And it's just a very timely but also exceptionally fascinating insight into what computational chemistry can do for us. I'm going to keep this intro quite short because uh, we have quite a lengthy um, and really interesting discussion. And a little bit like with the previous episode, Elisa and I were talking and kind of just segued straight into the interview. So what I'm going to do now is just hand you over directly to Elisa for a second as she describes how she sees her own career development and her journey to where she is today and the kind of work that she's doing. I'm a chemist, like by training, but I, let's say, abandoned chemistry as a, you know, like if you want to consider as a pure science, like what chemistry is supposed to be, if you ask a synthetic chemist 20 years ago, (laughs) it's just like I've been doing mostly biophysics. So since then, like quantum chemistry first and then um, biophysics. So that's how Elisa describes her career and the kind of work she's doing today. Then after that, we sort of jump straight into the discussion. And I start off by asking uh, Elisa to go into a little bit of detail based upon a recent publication that she had alerted me to. And there's a link to that, along with lots of other terms in the show notes of today's show. Um, one thing I should admit to is, I think uh, while I'm quoting back to her, the line from the introduction to her paper, I say possible, where actually I should have said impossible. Um, I hope that makes sense. So look, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I thought it was fascinating. Um, and I'll hand you over now to that discussion and I'll be back at the end. But in the paper you sent me, um, the very first part of the abstract, I thought was just like a really fascinating place to start. So what it says is, and I'm sorry to quote your own work back at you, but the chemical nature and heterogeneity of most complex carbohydrates makes their structural characterization very difficult, if not possible, through experimental biology. And I just thought that's such a like a, a, a bold and impressive place to start from, which says chemistry or experimentation in the lab will not tell us enough for for what we need to know. What does the computational side allow you then the lab techniques won't allow you to do? Yeah, so fundamentally, there there are limitations that, like for, let's say, experimental characterization of this uh, glycans, complex carbohydrates in general, the longer the worse. They are due to the fact that chemically they're extremely flexible molecules. They're all like single bonds, like linked. Some of those bonds are more mobile than others. So if you consider that on top of it, carbohydrates, unlike proteins or 
nucleic acid are branched polymers. So they don't go linearly. They can go any direction. Like, so they have uh, different hydroxyl groups. They can be functionalized with other branches. All of them can move independently relatively to their own, uh, let's say, structure. But this allows them to move within a time scale that is so fast that experimental uh, methods are not able to capture them, like to take mm -hmm. a picture of them. So you see a folded protein is actually stable, especially in cryogenic environments, uh, like for, you know, like you can crystallize it and you can actually sure. leave it there and uh, uh, image it like so through X-ray crystallography or cryo-EM. Meanwhile, the glycans retain a lot of dynamics within also cryogenic environments. So uh -huh. you can't see them. It's like taking a picture of a moving object, let's say a, a running dog. Mm -hmm. What you see is just a blur. Like if you don't know that that is a dog, because it just moves faster than the shutter speed, like of your op optical camera, you just can't tell. So what you have is just a blur. And mm -hmm. what computational methods allow you to do is to fit a structure like an ensemble of structure within this blur and capture the dynamics of these molecules within that real time scale. So mm -hmm. let's say nanoseconds to uh, microseconds, microseconds pertaining to glycans that undergo particularly rare conformational transitions, so changes mm -hmm. of shape. So, but no experimental methods bar NMR can give an image or give like information at such a rapid time scale. But, mm -hmm. and this is the, but that is actually the domain of, of molecular dynamics of classic, let's say, simulation methods. So methods that are based on classic molecular mechanics, so classical physics. When I seem back to when I did my degree, the, the kind of the statement was, Oh, proteins, yeah, structure is very important for function and you've got, you know, the primary through the quaternary structure. Oh, and they might have a sugar stuck on somewhere as well. And that was, you know, that was almost like a, an asterisk subnote in, in the text. But looking at the work you've been doing, or maybe we should just say that, you know, part, this is on, on, on viruses, but you know, obviously very relevant moment is the spike protein on the, on, on the coronavirus. It's amazing how much of that structure actually is made up of these glycans and the effect it has on the function so i think i kind of understood what was in your paper but people don't want to hear me explain it so, so maybe you should explain it and make sure that i get make sure that it is it is right but fascinating yeah thank you so um like a lot uh, a whole lot of proteins in general that undergo the secretory pathway are glycosylated something that hasn't well has been understood like for years and years however not really properly appreciated by especially by the structural biology community for different reasons well because fundamentally let's say like up to now where cryoam is like all the hype rightfully i'm a big cryoam fan i want a cryoam t-shirt like the <laughs> most the most of the pdb structures are from x-ray crystallography. Mm -hmm. So in order to crystallize a protein, the first thing you do is shave off the glycans because otherwise you won't get protein crystals whatsoever, like un at all, unless the glycan is bound to the protein. So it's fixed to the protein, but that's a different process. Because in the PDB, you could not see 
the like these um these glycans they were magically not there mm-hmm. you know like it's just like it it is an issue that stems i think from this process but it was not intentional so however glycans are like 2 to 3% of the human genome is dedicated to glycosylated proteins so that mm-hmm. is a process that it has an enormous complexity to it itself. The variety of glycans that you can have on a proteins are enormous. Proteins that are external to the cell, on the cell surface, inside the cell, are, can, are glycosylated, can be glycosylated. So mm-hmm. these glycans do stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, 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 the cell would not invest such an amount of energy and evolution in order to get stuff that is a mere decoration. Sure. So what has been discovered through the years through uh, the tire, like, tireless like work of mm. uh, uh, different type of scientists because uh, glycans are not template driven. There's no information in the DNA that tells you that that, that glycan is this type of glycan there. So um, have uh, revealed that glycosylation of a protein through the ER and Golgi allows a protein to fold, mm-hmm. preserve its structure, so and trafficking of the protein outside the cell. So this is intrinsic properties of the glycosylated protein. Then after the protein is either embedded within the cell membrane because it's a membrane protein or uh, is, uh, you know, secreted outside, uh, the glycans can perform a lot of functions, Mm -hmm. like an enormous type of function that are, uh, let's say, mediating protein-protein interaction. They actually uh, represent the first port of entry for uh, infection. So toxins, uh, bacteria, and Mm -hmm. viral infection, okay? Mm -hmm. And we get COVID. Well, we get to viruses in general, enveloped viruses. Uh, there, there are uh, viruses that are actually uh, wrapped within, like with a, with a membrane, like, like that is called an envelope. So, mm-hmm. like, just they're kind of spherical, and they present outside this fusion proteins. They're called spikes. Okay, they're called spikes because they come out like mm-hmm. this. So, like, just like this is not just a coronavirus. There is all enveloped viruses, mm-hmm. and uh, the spike proteins are all different. Uh, they 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 have different mechanisms that allow the virus to enter the cell. So that's why they have to be external because that those are the kind of the trigger like mm-hmm. for the virus to get in. One thing that all of these spike proteins have in common, outside, uh, like as, aside from the fold, like, you know, they, they kind of look a lot of them like mushrooms, but you see, if you see the HIV, uh, GP120, GP41, it looks like a stubbier mushroom. Right. <laughs> A spike protein that is in the coronavirus, it's that they are extremely heavily glycosylated. Mm-hmm. As you said, these proteins are covered literally in glycans. Mm-hmm. So the coronavirus is actually less covered than 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 the HIV, like GP120, GP40. Right. Like it's just that you can barely see the protein in those mm-hmm. uh, fusion proteins. They are completely fur, like covered in this glyco fur. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that is uh, uh, evolutionary advantageous for the virus uh, because it camouflages it from the immune system. Being outside, being exposed to to the immune system as the virus enters, if there wasn't, if it didn't have a cloak 
or what is called a glycan shield, hmm. immediately the immune system will recognize it as a foreign thing. Like so, meanwhile, the virus, what does it do? That during replication uses our own cell machinery, like or whatever host cell machinery, mm -hmm. uh, to glycosylate, to use, let's say, the host glycans, and it puts them on its own proteins so that the immune system doesn't recognize the virus because it's actually dressed up as a human. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right, yeah. Because it's covered by stuff that the immune system sees all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, well, this is cool, let, let it go, mm -hmm. like, it's, that's fine. What the immune system recognizes is proteins, epitopes, or let's say glycan or protein epitopes. So when you can see a bit of the protein that do not belong. Mm. So at that point, there's an immune response. So when so, these, sorry, I was just going to say, so when these viruses replicate and they put this glycan coat around themselves, it's not that the immune system is no good at recognizing anything with a glycan. It's that it's seen this before and it says, oh, no, this looks like one of our own cells, so we should just leave it alone. Yeah, yeah. So mm. the glycans in general, the, the coronavirus glycans are very human, like, you know, they're very... Uh, human-like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. um, meanwhile, other viruses, they have a much denser glycosylation. They have a slightly different glycosylation in terms of the type of glycans. And like they're still made by, let's say, human cells, like, uh, but mm -hmm. they're because they're so dense, they cannot be really elaborated much. So mm -hmm. they will represent something that, for example, in humans, is not that common, a type of glycan that is not that mm -hmm. common because human proteins are not so densely glycosylated. Mm -hmm. so, but the, the immune response, like they're very low immunogenic in that sense. So it's a very good disguise, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, and it makes like, because of, depending on how much of the protein is covered, it's hidden. Mm -hmm. It makes it really difficult to um, build an immune response and uh, design a vaccine for it. Mm -hmm. And I, I know you've been talking about this, and I think there was a phrase you used in your paper, which was carbohydrate force field. And as a science fiction nerd, that really <laughs> that resonated with me. Am I right in thinking in uh, in what you said in, in the publication as well that the the, the glycosylation coat isn't just about the virus being able to stealthily infect new cells. There are actually important functional roles that it plays in terms of enabling the spike protein to, to, to bind to the other host cell. Yeah. So like th this uh, functional role of the glycan shield is something that uh, we discovered recently uh, with uh, uh, like in collaboration with Rami Amaro's group with UCSD. And it's a uh, unique to this particular virus uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, entry. So what does this spike do? This The coronavirus spike has to do is open in order to uh, initiate, the, initiate the process of entering mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the whole cell by binding a receptor that is a primary receptor. It's called ACE2. Mm -hmm. So this opening is actually like a complete, like a very, let's say, complex conformational change of mm -hmm. the actual protein architecture of it. And because of its actually protein architecture, the glycan shield, what does it do in this case? It's, it's actually compounds it, like, you know, like it stabilizes it mm. uh, in the open conformation, like putty, you know, like, yeah. like you know, like you just say, because otherwise it will be holes everywhere. Mm. And mm. in nature, especially at that 
um, level of like small, like just say like tiny, tiny things, like you know, like the um, at that level of the scale of dimensions. Uh, as soon as there's a vacuum or or a hole that is created, water floods in and it breaks everything apart. So what the, what we discovered through um, multi microsecond molecular dynamic simulation that. I mean, require extremely large uh, computational resources to do is that the glycans actually support this open spike mm -hmm. in a way that depends. Uh, and this is episode two that we've just put on bioarchive, that it depends on the type of glycosylation. Mm -hmm. So not all glycans are able to do this. The type of glycosylation actually affects the type of um, support, like it's just like, you know, it's like a crutch. Like if mm -hmm. you think that the glycan is propping up this part of the protein that needs to bind the receptor. Like if you think about it, like, you know, a good crutch that, you know, like fits your armpit would be mm -hmm. fine. But yeah. if the crutch is like, you know, up to your hip, it's not gonna do much, mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's small. Or if there's no crutch, there's no mm -hmm. opening, you just fall down. Mm -hmm. So. What we uh, we looked at is like how the different types of, of glycans or different type of glycosylation can affect that. And that's uh, as repercussion on therapeutic um, interventions. Mm -hmm. As there's all, as I said earlier, there's a lot of enzymes that are dedicated to remodeling this glycans by like in our own cells. So, mm -hmm. you know, take them down, put them up, like, you know, decorate them variously. So by actually in, like selective inhibition of different mm -hmm. pathways, you can actually create a type of glycosylation that is not functional at all. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's something that, you know, like that's, that's the work that we've been doing so far, like in, in order to understand what this glycan shield does within the context of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. so, so taking the coronavirus as an example, then, if it's got the, the type of glycosylation on it that it currently has, it means that the virus circulating around our bodies has a good chance of infecting a cell and causing the disease. But then if you change the glycosylation or, you know, um, I guess mutate it in some way, actually, although the virus may be going around in your bloodstream, it doesn't have a chance to bind to your cell and give you the disease. And at some point yeah. your body will just eliminate that, yeah, that virus. Yeah, useless. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, it would be not as effective. It would not mm -hmm. create havoc. Like mm -hmm. we start not replicating effectively. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the number of viruses circulating will be lower, much mm -hmm. lower. It will be a mild infection. Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, your body like gets rid of it how i don't know like i'm not an immunologist or like you know like a medical doctor but it's just like to make like the virus what the virus does fundamentally like in my understanding that's based on uh, viral evolution is to make itself the more and more effective and mm. replicating like that's his job like it doesn't like you know killing the host is not the primary uh, actually no it's a side effect because mm -hmm. you know it's a dead person is not or a dead you know carrier mm. is not a good carrier for replication but to like allow for maximum titers like mm -hmm. you know that's uh, in, in replication so if you start meddling with it it would not uh, do that. So mm -hmm. I guess that will be a rubbish virus. 
Yeah. And, and, and although obviously everybody is very focused on the coronavirus at the moment for very obvious reasons, it's not limited just to that virus, right? I mean, I think you've shown in this paper, was it HIV and a uh, flu virus as well? Or, yeah. Yeah. Like in, the, in that uh, review, I, I was looking mm. at um, three cases in which, like, have been, they say, like, uh, tackled uh, extensively mm -hmm. uh, with, um, let's say, computational studies and where computational studies have provided, mm -hmm. you know, like the missing atomistic information. And so, like, especially the dynamics mm -hmm. of the glycan shield that is important uh, to understand where uh, do we look for therapeutic, uh, let's say, strategies or for a vaccine designs mm -hmm. uh, to optimize vaccine designs and so on. Mm -hmm. So it is a characteristic that all envelope virus share, like, you mm -hmm. know, like herpes virus, Lassa virus, they're all like uh, envelope viruses. So they all have this very glycosylated spikes. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and like what we found is just actually something that it's important also to underline that everybody talks about mutations uh, of the protein. Well, I think if there's something that uh, influenza teaches us is uh, that <laughs> it mutates, uh, like the glycan shield mutates quite effectively. Yeah. A mutation of the glycan shield can change the, you know, epitope specificity, can change affinity. Uh, and this is actually the evolution of the glycan shield is something that is happening in SARS viruses. So um, there are differences, for example, fundamental differences that we looked at mm -hmm. uh, uh, between the coronavirus one, the one, well, the coronavirus, because we thought it was not going to be the episode two <laughs> in 2003 um, that is very similar mm -hmm. to the coronavirus that we have now uh, that <clears throat> actually have conferred more potency to this virus, more like uh, like mm -hmm. uh, hope like possibly um, a more infectious virus. Like there are probably several other types of of uh, con uh, consideration to be made, but there have been several changes in the glycan shield that actually optimized the function of this, the activity of the spike. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of look at the old evolution, just not about the protein evolution itself. Mm -hmm. So um, in looking at... Uh, you know, like what makes it more active, what makes it more contagious, more, more, yeah, like in the, in the old scheme of things. Yeah, and I think, you know, what, what you're saying is really interesting in terms of this sort of like multidisciplinary approach to look at the virus, right? I mean, I know in the UK, there's, there's been a lot of media about the fact that we've got all these great sequencing capabilities and we're sequencing variants. And, you know, that's highly useful to do. But if that's not telling you how the thing looks and operates because of the glycan shield then changing as well, and you can't, you know, I don't know how much that is detectable, you need to bring all those, you know, additional factors into the equation. Yeah, like, so fortunately, the glycan shield is made out of particular, like the large majority of the glycan shield is made of a particular type of glycosylation that's called N-glycans. Mm -hmm. So N-glycans do not occur everywhere. 
in the sequence of a protein that are, they occur only in um, uh, in like correspond like in the correspondence of what is called a sequon. So it has to be a sequence of three amino acids in a row. Mm-hmm. So and they're called N-glycans because they they link to an asparagine that is like in protein lingo as N. Mm-hmm. So and has to be followed by whatever amino acid. So we call it X, except for proline, okay? Mm-hmm. And either a serine or a threonine. So from, from uh, you see, like sequencing, you can tell what sequins are there in, mm-hmm. every, um, in every, you know, like protein that you can sequence. Uh, some of the sequins are uh, occupied so they might be glycosylated. Our sequence are other are not like depending on where they are in the structure. So from from sequencing a protein, you get a string of amino acids. So if you don't have a structure, you don't know where these things are. They can be inside a protein, outside a protein. So all this glycan shield is outside mm-hmm. because it needs to be reached by proteins in, uh, enzymes mm-hmm. in order to put them there. So. Um, like the, <clears throat> but you can tell if you have a protein that if a sequence appears or disappears. So yeah. in a mutant, you would tell if there's a new glycan, and a, mm. or, or an old glycan, and you know some some position might suppress other positions. Mm. Like so, uh, the glycan shield, like uh, like in our like as we we described uh, in our paper in collaboration with uh, Ben Schultz, the University of Queensland is undergoing extensive mutation mm-hmm. so it's um and uh, the positions are appearing and disappearing and some important position that disappeared recently especially between cov1 and cov2 have allowed the virus possibly to actually use a different even a different mechanism to be more even more infectious right. this is also again glycan based mm-hmm. so the um, the cell is covered by glycans. So not only the the the, the glycans that are on, you know, that I've described as N glycans before, but a lot of different other glycans are very large chains. They're like glycosaminoglycans. They're called. Mm. So if you imagine this, all the cells are like super furry, like super furry. Yeah. So a, like a, a virus needs to actually like fur mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to get in there. So it needs to interact positively or proactively with this fur. And because uh, of, uh, of some mutation, we think like it's, uh, that, that have changed the glycan shield within this virus, the virus, the coronavirus too, has acquired an uncanny uh, potential in interacting with all this fur. So right. what happens is like, well, the virus goal is to reach the receptor that is a cell-bound receptor. So the cell-bound receptor is within this fur. So as soon like the, the, the virus approaching really likes the fur, binds to the fur, and eventually mm-hmm. is going to find a receptor. A virus that is not too keen on the fur will find a receptor mm-hmm. less. Mm-hmm. So there's a method that a lot of viruses use for localization, so to localize themselves onto the cell. Mm-hmm. So, and... Uh, yeah, it's an evil machinery, but mm. like it's an evil machinery that can be understood and should be understood. And all this, let's say, um, mechanisms and um, uh, like the, I don't know, like I don't want to say like I don't know, because I'm not on the virus side, but like mm. is extremely clever. Mm-hmm. 
it's all based on glycoscience in the, like the glycobiology and glycans interactions uh, between the virus and the cell. And if you do not take that into consideration, mm. you're just missing the whole plot. <laughs> yeah. just, you're missing the story completely. Mm. So that's, uh, that's why, like, you know, during this year, one of the main missions that you know, myself and many other glycoscientists had is to just to promote as much as possible uh, the importance of glycans uh, in biology and their fundamental role in, mm. in viral pathogenesis that um, is, un like, uh, like uh, sadly disregarded for mm. Uh, by the let's say the mainstream like science or biophysics in particular where I belong uh, till now. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but there's been quite a lot of press interest. Um, you said you know since you published this work, right? And and obviously with what's going on in the world. Yeah, there has been because I think it's just like what we showed is actually the 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 protein that has been on everybody's mouse people that knew they were in the business and people that mm. were not in the business doesn't look anything like what is what has been shown before mm -hmm. it is completely covered in glycans so it's just like it was a missing part that nobody has highlighted before so and you know like okay it's just actually look look at the you look, look at the murderer like you mm -hmm. know this yeah. is the it's not that guy it's the mm -hmm. other guy so and it revealed like pretty much uh like clearly like very clearly and obviously that you just needed to use that model a fully glycosylated protein in order to understand the, how to how, how to win this war mm -hmm. because if you don't you're just looking at a wrong like <laughs> wrong murder yeah. wrong, you're just actually probably diverting mm -hmm. a lot of energy and effort into something that is not going to be as successful if successful mm -hmm. in the first place so the second part that actually was probably received more from um, let's say more uh, in 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 the know people is that this was the first time the glycan shield was revealed as functional mm -hmm. in in the work of a protein. So usually, as I said, glycans might be either directly involved in the binding, like so the protein function, let's say that it has to encounter another protein in order to do something. Mm -hmm. So they might mediate this encounter. It's like, this is an immune response. For example, glycans are mm -hmm. like really important for that. Um, Glycan-glycan interactions of that sort, uh, or for the protein to exist in the first place as a folded protein, mm -hmm. like because they facilitate folding. Uh, or trafficking, so like the protein finally gets out where it belongs. But they're never been like in viral in viro protein uh, and like implicated in the actual mechanism of infection. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. glycan are as guilty as the protein in making yeah. this machinery perfect mm -hmm. as it is. Because, mm -hmm. well, a non glycosylated protein A does not exist. Like, I'm sorry for all the people that actually worked on the non-glycosylated protein, like from the functional point of view, mm -hmm. uh, not from the structural point of view, because, uh, um, well, they cannot see them. So, like, that's that's what it is. Uh, uh, but it's, it's just, like, it doesn't exist because, A, it wouldn't fold. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't look like that at all. B, it just wouldn't work. It just would not work. Like, so... Mm -hmm. 
is that's to, to answer again like sort of long-winded answer i think it is just like the press uh, interest was because we imaged what the actual thing mm. looks like mm-hmm. so like in all his beauty and in all his dangers <laughs> yeah and i think it, i mean given where we are at the moment people are hearing a lot about infectivity our numbers you know the, the popular press is reporting all of that and i suppose you know you you've shown the cellular and molecular mechanisms that are actually making that happen down at the very sharp end when a virus gets into a cell so you know i you know i i really applaud the work that you've done in being able to you know kind of show that to, to people that it you know it isn't just about did i you know did somebody cough on me or not or did i wash my hands properly you know that's an entry mechanism it it, it it's also you know how how the viral coat is structurally designed that's supporting the function of getting you know into the cells and and causing people to be ill so yeah that's uh, i think that's a really beautiful part of the work that you've done here so uh, it's it's great Um, we're proud of it like you know it's been like a a great collaboration that is mm -hmm. ongoing in so many directions still um one one of the positive things with this year, like um, year and a half at this point, mm-hmm. is like within the science science community, is that you know everybody pulled in together. There was just like um, like especially my experience, like with Rami's group, like with Jason McLennan's group, like we're authors of this work, and with uh, Ben Schultz, like with the work on the other uh, like the other part of the work, like and uh, you know contacts with the you know, through conferences, through talks, through chats, whatnot, mm. everybody pulled in together. They lost, like, kind of like, they, they, our own, let's say, glory or our own like aims were completely mm. disregarded. It's just like, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. How can I help by working with somebody else that has more expertise in that particular field? So, uh, it which was essential. Like, you know, like, I don't think that any of us singularly could have done this work to the completeness that it was done at. So, and this is like a lot of scientists have all like worked together. We abandoned everything we were doing in March last year. Like everything else was just like put on the side and probably funding agencies are going to be like, what? (laughs) But it's just like we dedicated all our resources to this, like Mm -hmm. 100%. So, and this is also goes to the, uh, you know, a testament to the the dedication of the students who Mm -hmm. were, that was a risk, very Mm -hmm. big risk. But they have a project, it's funded, you know, and they were like, okay, so should I put shelf it? Mm -hmm. And then work on the coronavirus, what's going to be for my PhD Mm -hmm. or you know like my degree so uh yeah like it's that went very well so hmm. and and you you know, I, I completely agree with you know i think everybody i've spoken to on the on the podcast this year that's something that's come through is exactly like you say that they, they've stopped what they were doing how can i help in 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 all sorts of ways i think that comes through that you know when 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 we pull together we we can do amazing things so that's a lesson that i hope uh, people will remember I definitely will like you know mm. it doesn't exist to do things alone anymore there's no mm. reason or no 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 point you know like you, what I can do I can do well but mm. it's limited 
So like if I join forces with somebody else that has expertise in so such as such, we can do much greater mm. things and, you know, uh, and like, pro- like give like really s- valuable insight instead mm. of just like the salami slice of the story and say, oh yeah, I haven't done this because mm. I'm not able to do it. So ask somebody else, you know, mm. like just like, more a whole like comprehensive uh, science story hmm. requires a lot of inputs from people that come from different directions. Like so, yeah. that's uh, that's hmm. been one of the they say highlights or silver lining of this year. I guess. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, I'm just wondering if I could change direction ever so slightly because um, you touched on something that I was interested in asking um, you mentioned that it takes a lot of computing power to do these simulations um, and I was going to ask does this just from your normal laptop I'm, I'm guessing not could you give us an idea of you know what are we talking about in terms of processing power needed to to do these kind of simulations yeah, so like to give you an idea, like the uh, the the full spike, like so the full spike embedded in a membrane with like uh, you know uh, all this water and counter ion environment was counted 1.7 million atoms. So mm-hmm. one of 1.7 million centers that you need to run calculation and the calculation scales with mm-hmm. the number of atoms. Okay, the calculations that we're doing. <clears throat> so so is it is it it's a power function, right? It's something to the power of 1.7 million. Or it's just like n will be one point seven million. Yeah, with like that number. So like the um, the more atoms you have, the more calculation you have to do. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it just like the um, for to do those simulations. What uh, like uh, like the, the simulation that was the that Rami Amaro's group mm-hmm. run were run on uh, uh, the one of the fastest supercomputers in the world that is like in Texas. Uh, and they were run, if I'm not mistaken, like top of my head, 280 uh, nodes in parallel. So that is wow. an enormous amount. Yeah. Uh, so, and those are CPUs. Like, so what we used, uh, like w- once we have figured it out, you actually don't need the old spike. You just mm. need the top of the spike in order to, uh, prob- properly address uh, the um, the mechanism of opening. Uh, what we like, we reduce obviously the number of atoms, mm. but not by a super great deal. Like you know, just for, like probably um, a less than half and something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so what we use is GPUs. GPUs are much faster. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used uh, between two and four GPUs at once in parallel, and those are slower simulations. But like you know, our last um, uh, experiment there was like I don't remember if it was twelve models or even more than that. And multi multi microsecond of each of them was run for ten months. Like those experiments were 10 months of experiments run on European um, re- computational resources from Prace. So we got 15.8 million core hours. So that's uh, enormous. And uh, we used them for ten, 10 months and run on uh, uh, a computer in Italy that's mm-hmm. called Marconi 100. Yeah. So you need very potent, like, like very powerful supercomputers to run this thing. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, maybe for people who who aren't familiar with this, you know, something so small is so complex to to, to model that it requires, as you say, some of the most powerful computing in the world to do. It's yeah. it's it's insane. But again, it's a testament to you know everybody throwing in and putting that effort in and yeah. making those resources available. Um, yeah, so, so for example, praise uh, in. The- uh, May of last year, mm. they have uh, usually they have recurrent calls for this allocation of very large resources, mm. but they had a special fast track, uh, they say, award mm-hmm. of resources to only for COVID pro- pro- mm-hmm. pro- uh, uh, projects. So that was instrumental because usually the review of this thing takes months, mm-hmm. uh, six months, seven months. Uh, that took one month of review everybody was just pulling in and just like all the reviewers were like you know uh speed up like mm. in a, on, a, on a fast track and uh, so we were able to start in june and we finished in december so mm. wow okay um and there was something i sort of made a note of to ask you which was working on this you know working in simulations and you know a lot of people have been home working and I was just wondering, you know, how much of this were you able to do remotely? And I was also going to ask about, you know, a little bit of a mix of the physical science. And, you you know, you've already answered a big fan of cryo-EM, for instance. So, you know, there's there, there, there's clearly a connection, right? It, it doesn't all just happen on a screen for you. There's there's work done with collaborators or, or with members of your team on, on, on physical studies as well. So how, how has that been working through this process as well? Have you still been able to do the physical science well, part? Yeah, like me, I don't do any of the mm. physical science part. Mm. So, uh, like, we have been working remotely quite successfully. I haven't been uh, in the lab since uh, April last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I haven't seen my students in 3D since April last year. Um, so, it's, uh, but I mean, we would have to connect to these big resources or this mm. calculator. Uh, computing centers, high-performance high computer center mm-hmm. that they're called remotely, mm-hmm. you know, anyway. So, you know, we have a big uh, uh, resources in Ireland as well, but the computer is far away from here. Like we are just always, so connecting from home or connecting from mm-hmm. work is just identical. So for our work, it's been fine. Uh, for, in terms of the um, the experiments that, um, you know, like the, the people have done to support uh, our indirect support of our work, like, so there were people that were allowed to be in the lab. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, like for the first work, uh, uh, part of the work, uh, Jason McLennan's group, like Jason, Jason Lab is uh, one of the first uh, that uh, resolved the uh, uh, spike proteins um, coronavirus to uh, structure. Like mm-hmm. you know, that is it is uh, world renowned. Is it is the reason why we have a vaccine? Like let's <laughs> say you know, it's uh, it's been his work has been. Uh, incredible like you know like uh, for for the advancements that we have at this point in every like to combat the, the virus full mm. stop so uh, i like and he was in the lab uh, when when he did the, the experiments on our mutants so, so mm. our suggested mutants that was last summer uh so for other in terms of uh building this structure so reconstructing the glycan shield what we need 
essentially that is vital is glycoanalytics. So what mm. we need is to know what glycans goes where. <laughs> like, so what type of, uh, of this very complex sugars uh, do we need to rebuild and analyze precisely? And this has been, again, the tireless work on another one of the, let's say, like in this case, the glyco hero of this mm. year that is like Max Crispins at the University of South- Southampton, who has um, published yeah, as a preprint first in uh, February last year, the complete profile of the glycosylation of the spike, and then followed up like so many other different mm-hmm. studies has complemented this. Uh, and then finally, this work was published in Science in June. Again, I think another fundamental contribution uh, to this effort, and uh, I hope like this as well, I hope it, like I, I think it's pretty clear uh, the, uh, the role of uh, preprints and preprinting mm-hmm. in, advan- in, in science advancement. Uh, we were we would be months behind if we, if we were not able to get this preprints, this data like on preprint, and mm-hmm. then be ourselves the uh, you know like the peer reviewer. Mm-hmm. I remember getting those those papers. I was like, okay, so we get this and you read the paper and then, you know, like you assess as much as you can if it's good or not and you can use it or not. And then it goes into peer review. So if we had to wait for peer review, for example, for Max Crispin's work, mm-hmm. like we wouldn't have we wouldn't have been able to start our simulation like uh, until six months after. And we would have lost six months. Yeah. So yeah. It's fundamental that this uh, the science is communicated um, through this avenue. And like as bioarchive writes, there is a note. This is not peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. Watch out, you know, like it's a warning. Yeah. However, like a, a peer reviewed article is usually reviewed by two people, and not necessarily it's two people, two, three people, if you're lucky. Like it is never like a guarantee that these two, three people are actually competent. Uh, so if you put a, a preprint, everybody sees it. Mm-hmm. Every, like to your own demise. That's why, like, I think the overall, let's say, like, there are some flukes, obviously, everywhere there's flukes. But the overall quality of the preprints and how useful some of them, like how fundamental some of mm-hmm. them have been through this progress is, uh, I think, one of those, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, things that we should cherish after uh, after all this nightmare is over. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, yes, the, the debate about the peer review process is one I don't think that's ever going to stop right. So, uh, uh, but here again is like, oh, it's not peer reviewed. I'm just gonna like, good thing mm-hmm. that I'm home. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot <laughs> do it. But it's just ludicrous. It's a ludicrous statement. Like, there's mm-hmm. so much absolute garbage mm-hmm. that peer-reviewed the circles mm. out like you see the the uh like tireless work of elizabeth bick mm. like in uh like finding out what's uh you know figures that have been uh meddled with or mm. pa- photoshopped uh and this is all mm. peer-reviewed it's, it's just like you know it's it's something that needs to be like and i guess we're in the process of re-evaluating slowly but surely don't get me wrong like you know i i i, I I value peer-reviewed. Mm. I'm a reviewer. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's a great um, you know step mm-hmm. uh, to progress to have you know uh, all your work examined and critically examined. However, 
you know, like for different reasons for, especially because of academic institution, like how it is and how you're judged. Peer review is just so biased. It's just so like, it's a, it's a, like, well, it's not foolproof. Let's put it that way. And I'm being nice. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm aware of time. So I, I think, you know, maybe um, last sort of thing I'd like to just ask is then, um, so what's what's next for you? I think I saw that you've got a funded sabbatical coming up or? Yeah, I've got an approved sabbatical. Like, mm. so um, where I'm going to be like for six months. So that's mm. uh, very exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, at the Institute of Glycomics, for Glycomics in uh, Gold Coast in um, Australia. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Institute of Glyco for Glycomics is actually a whole institute where uh, dedicated to glycoscience and uh, understanding glycoscience, understanding carbohydrates and in infection in cancer, in uh, every, like, let's like say, like mm -hmm. biology in general. And uh, it's uh, it's actually led and founded uh, founded by uh, uh, Professor Mark von Itstein, who discovered Relenza, like which is like the one of the two now. Like well, he's gonna kill me. Like <laughs> I think one of the only two therapeutic uh, that are uh, active against uh, influenza um, neuraminidase. Okay, and so. When and, and and physically you'll be going to Australia for that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they let me in, yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm hoping to get vaccinated, so like, uh, by that time, and it will be hmm. February 2022, so I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll be vaccinated by that. I'm, I'm, We're I'm, slow, but not that slow, but no. uh, you know, after that, hmm. I hope to be a free citizen again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I guess, is there anything else that I should have asked you or anything else you want to uh, sort of make a comment on or talk about? Uh, no, like, you know, it's, uh, other than like, thank you so much for having me here. And, uh, you know, like for, uh, again, uh, like use your time to be like to, uh, you know, as a glyco evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, Spreading my word, hmm. the glyco world <laughs> word around is just like that. Uh, it's so important hmm. to consider all sides of biology, not just hmm. you know one that is very important. Proteins, hmm. low proteins, but hmm. uh, it's only one side of the of the picture. No, and I. So first of all, um, it's me should be thanking you. Um, you know, and and uh, you are an evangelist. You come across incredibly passionately about about what you do. And um, the glycobiome, I guess, is is incredibly important in lots of biological processes. And as we've learned over the past couple of years, disease processes in particular. And um, you know, I encourage anybody who's glyco curious to get into it. It's probably one of the toughest areas of sort of biochemistry or biology to look into right because it as you say these things are very difficult to examine experimentally so and we need new tools for this they're difficult to look at like some like a colleague of mine once asked me is like what when there are not that many people that if there are any people that actually look at uh, glycans like from the this day computational mm -hmm. biophysics point of view it's because they're extremely difficult to look at uh, they require a, a background in order to understand them in chemistry. You need to understand the chemistry of of a of a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. 
like in order to actually even look at it. Like I've been working carbohydrates for a very long time at this mm. point, and I still have trouble distinguishing like, you know, different monosaccharides if mm. I don't draw them or don't look at them. Like I cannot at a glance say, bang, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's this and that, you know, mm. like linkages, especially when they're in 3D, when they're in mm. 2D. So it's fine, but it's uh, it's it's they're difficult to look at. They're extremely flexible, so they're impossible to to look at experimentally. Mm. They're not template driven, so you cannot sequence nothing. Um, it's uh, uh, and also the biology of of carbohydrates, so glycans, is mm. enormously complex. So, mm. so you need a biology background, or you need the will to. Mm go for it like I did I didn't have, I have a chemistry degree and mm. theoretical chemistry degree in the end uh, so to me uh, actually uh, was a discovery that I had to do by myself and work um, myself together with mm. like supervisors and you know um, colleagues and learn I'm still learning loads mm. like sometimes I'm like oh my god I didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> it happens every day but it makes it interesting and that's where we must leave the conversation and what a great point to finish on. I hope you enjoyed hearing about glycobiology and the computational side and maybe learning something that's a little bit out of the ordinary for you. I certainly know that was the case for me. I also would want to reinforce the point that, that came through strongly today. We've heard it in, in other episodes about the importance of working in an interdisciplinary fashion uh, when it comes to scientific endeavor and working collaboratively. I think you heard that really strongly from Elisa that she's benefited from the people that she's been able to partner with. And it's that interdisciplinary collaborative approach that allows us to address and solve some of the big challenges facing the world uh, through scientific approaches. I want to thank Elisa very much for her time and also just for the work that she's doing and really bringing a fascinating discussion to the show today. Elisa, thank you. And also I would like to say thank you to uh, Vittorio Sagiomo who made the connection to Elisa. And uh, as you heard Elisa mention during the show, Vittorio has been doing some work with Elisa on actually 3D modeling out the spike protein, uh, which has been very helpful. With that, I think we'll wrap it up for today. As always, if you like the show and you haven't subscribed yet, please do in your podcast app of choice and the next episode will drop right in. We should be back in a couple of months or so with the next episode. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll speak to you on the next episode of The Modern Chemistry Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Modern Chemistry Podcast. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll have the next episode drop straight into your podcast feed.